in our study today, I want to I sort of look at the title that's entitled Starting Point. There's a place to start. A starting point means there has to be a point or a place in which something begins. There's a beginning place. And we've been describing and talking about discipleship now for several Sundays and we begin the new year. And in order to be a disciple, there has to be a starting point, a, a place of beginning, a place where it all starts. When was that time for you? Where were you when that time began? What happened in order to, to begin that starting point where you then took upon this incredible journey of a disciple's life in following after the Lord Jesus Christ? A starting point. This morning we're going to look at a passage in Matthew 9, 9 where we see a man who wrote the gospel of Matthew. He wrote the gospel according to Christ in this incredible narrative where he testifies and tells us of his own story or what we might call a testimony of when he had his starting point, when he began. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read together in Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 9. And in honor of God's word, let's stand together. This is Matthew's starting, starting point and standing point. It's interesting that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God leads him to tell his own story. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you can tell your story in one sentence or maybe in four verses, four sentences like Matthew does, that's a good thing. We need to narrow it down because there are times when you're going to have an opportunity to tell your story and you're not going to be able to tell your story in, in more than four minutes. Seriously, it will happen. There will be a time in which you're going to have an opportunity to tell your story about how you came to know Christ and you're going to have a very short window of that opportunity and you need to have it this narrowly focused. What is a good testimony? Your life before you came to Christ, how you came to Christ, and what your life is like after you came to Christ. Just, just three-point sermon. That's all, that's all it is. And believe it or not, you can do it in about four or five minutes, unlike me. So uh, this is Matthew's testimony. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Fathers, we stand in honor of your word. It amazes me how your word clearly communicates to the needs of our hearts and to the needs of those around us. And so God, I pray that as we have opened your word, that you would open our hearts this morning and fill us with insight, with life transformational truth that would cause us this morning to be stirred by your spirit, to move closer into the image and the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for the example that you've modeled for us in the scriptures in which you have called us not only to follow you, but you have modeled exactly what it means to be a disciple. You're not asking us to do anything that you yourself were not willing to do. And so we're honored today to be able to stand in honor of your word and in honor of your life and your, your example for us. And I pray that as we study this incredible encounter you had with this amazing man named Matthew and how you transformed his life, we would be reminded 
as to our testimony and how that happened with us, our own personal story about how we came to faith, and that if anyone here this morning doesn't have that kind of story, that today this would be the moment, this would be the opportunity that they would place their faith and trust in you and commit to you their heart and their lives. Lord, empower me, enable me beyond my own ability to do what needs to be done in this moment as we study your word. And we'll be very careful to give you the honor and the glory for all that you are doing among us, in us, and through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As we take a look at the text in Matthew 9, 9, it's important for us to sort of look at the context of the narrative that we've studied so far. And if you look at the last part of Matthew chapter 8, you discover that Jesus is on one side of the Sea of Galilee and he encounters a man, two men who are demon possessed, and he casts out the demon. The people in the city are, are, are perplexed. They're, they're not happy about that. They've never seen that kind of power. And because of that, they completely reject and refuse to believe in Jesus. As a matter of fact, they want him to leave. And he, he leaves. Where Jesus is not someone who's going to push himself into people's lives and, and sort of tear down the door of those who are putting up doors of resistance to him. He gets in the boat in Matthew 9, 9. He travels by boat to the other side of the sea, and he arrives at his, at his favorite destination, a city that is familiar to him and will continue to be familiar to him throughout his ministry in Galilee. And in this city of Capernaum, he gets off the boat, walks on the dock, begins walking through the sea of Capernaum. He is making his way through the city to the edge of town to go to another city, another village like we have studied so far. But on his way through the city in, in Matthew 9, 1, we see that someone brings to him a man who is paralyzed. That means he's unable to walk. And because of his paralysis, he is in desperate need of healing. More than likely, they have sought all kinds of physicians and tried all kinds of medications, been to all kinds of experts, but have been unable to see their beloved cured. And so they bring him to Jesus. Jesus, rather than healing him, does something that is totally unexpected in Matthew 9, 1 through Eight, he forgives the man of his sin. Amazing. It, it, is, it is spoken with such authority, and, and more than likely there was such a transformation of the man's spiritual condition, regardless of whether there wasn't or wasn't a change in his physical condition. We know that there wasn't because he still remained paralyzed, that the scribes who were present, the religious elite, are upset that Jesus has taken upon himself to exercise the authority that only is rightfully God's. You see, they don't believe that Jesus is God, and how in the world could he? This is blasphemy for Jesus to look at this man who is there because of a paralysis, and they believe because of sin, and Jesus forgives the man of his sin. Only God can do that. Let me go to a little side note here. There's no priest, there's no pastor, there's no parent, there's no church, there's no denomination that can forgive you of your sin, only Christ. And Christ forgives the man of his sin. It's phenomenal. And he speaks with such authority that the people are amazed. As a matter of fact, the Bible that I have in my hand said that they were fearful. They were totally in awe at the respect and the reverence because they recognized and realized that they were standing in the presence of God because only God can forgive sin. And the scribes put a little grumbling up, and so Jesus addresses their concern. He said, all right, guys, let me ask you, what is, gra what is greater? What is the greatest miracle? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? You know the rest of the story. You've heard it before. And so 
to demonstrate his power and his authority and to demonstrate the authenticity of who he claims, he turns to the man and said, rise. And the man rises from his condition. He is permanently and completely healed and he journeys and ventures from that spot to his home. That was his starting point that took him back to his home. Imagine the reunion that was that day with him and his family. And so now we see in the narrative, Jesus, after having had that encounter, proceeds to walk through the streets of Capernaum and he is on his way to the edge of town. He is leaving Capernaum to go to another city, another village. Notice then the testimony of Matthew and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We then pick up the narrative where we see him describing his testimony. Here it is. Point number one in his testimony, in Matthew's life story, there's a divine, a divine selection. There is a divine selection. In his starting point, in his, in his beginning of the journey of discipleship, there is a divine selection in which Jesus Christ, the divine son of God, is about to cherry pick Matthew out from where he is to invite him to put his faith and trust in him and to become a disciple. Notice what he records in his own words, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 9. As Jesus passed from there, he saw. As Jesus passed from there, he saw. Now, Jesus is passing through the city of Capernaum following that encounter. And he passed from there, and he was going to the edge of the town, and he saw Matthew. And Matthew is sitting at his tax booth. Now, Matthew is minding his own business, but notice that Jesus is the one who saw him. As I look at the text and, and, and sort of dive into the narrative and sort of, sort of dissect the words he saw, it, it, is, it is important that we understand that it is Jesus who is initiating the seeing and not Matthew. It is Jesus who perceives where Matthew is, what Matthew is doing, and what Matthew needs. Christ is the one who is seeking. Why? Because he is seeking to fulfill his Mission. What is his mission? We've talked about it several times. To redeem lost sinners and to recruit servants. You got to have the R and the S. It helps me remember things. So I got through seminary. Redeem sinners, recruit servants. That's what Jesus is doing. He's walking through the streets of Capernaum and he is on mission. His primary mission is to redeem a lost world that is in desperate need of a savior. That is his mission. But he knows and he understands that his mission, while it is to be short-lived and have an incredible potential to change the world by the, by the work that he does on the cross, where he takes upon himself the sin of mankind for those who will place their faith and trust in him, he knows that he's going to ascend to the Father and he's going to need to leave disciples, recruits who will serve him in the capacity of continuing the ministry that he begins in redeeming a lost world unto faith in Jesus. And so he's looking. He is intentionally purposefully, not coincidentally, not accidentally, but he is intentionally, purposefully seeking out to fulfill his mission, and he sees Matthew. Matthew has no idea that he is being seen. As a matter of fact, I don't even think the context seems to suggest that Matthew even knows that he is even present or even getting close to him. Matthew is busy doing what tax collectors do, collecting taxes, and he is completely unaware of the presence or even the sight of Christ. He is not looking to Jesus. Why? Because I'm convinced that Matthew has already written himself off because the church had written him off. 
He was a traitor. He was a sinner. He was a publican. He was working for the Roman government collecting taxes. And he, he probably didn't even go to the synagogue because people didn't want him there. And so he, he knew who he was. And I think as he looked in the mirror every morning, he never saw himself as a potential disciple of Jesus. So he was not looking in the direction of Christ, but Christ was looking into his direction. Why? Because he wanted to select Matthew to be a disciple. This is divine election. And what is election? Simply selection. Christ selected him. That was his starting point. Christ was pursuing Matthew. He knew where he was. He knew what he was doing. And he knew what needed to happen into his life to transform and to change his life from being a sinner to being a servant. And Christ was seeking him out. That is where our starting point began. Because the passages are inundated. The, the Bible is inundated with passage after passage after passage. Let's look at two which describe that we were not seeking him, but he sought us out. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You didn't choose him. He chose you. He selected you out of a, out of a crowd, out of a sea of humanity. And he said, I select that one. I want him and I want her to be my disciple. Again, you see, again, in verse 19, in the same chapter 15 of John, it says, if you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Who chose you? He did. I've said this before, you didn't wake up one morning and just decide you were going to choose Jesus as your Savior and trust in him as your Savior and commit to him the leadership and the lordship of your life. That does not happen because there is no one who seeks after God. And in your, in your depravity and in your humanity and in your sin and your lostness, you were, you, you were unconcerned about Jesus at all in the life that he offered to you. You, you just didn't care, but he did. And this is the starting point for Matthew. Jesus is selecting him. Interesting in Matthew twenty two fourteen, I'm going to quote it in a minute. I'm going to read it for you. There's a, there's a narrative where Jesus is talking about a wedding that's going on. And he's, he's telling an illustration about a guy who's having a wedding. We're about to have one in, in April in Canada. Pray for us. It's a long way. They have funny accents, but they're good people. And, uh, and so he invites them to the wedding. And, and after his, his servants invite, no one responds. Invites him again and no one responds. So he, he sends his servants out on the highways and, and in the byways and brings all the sinners and the poor. And he describes one who's standing there amidst the, the wedding party who's not properly dressed. And in that narrative, in that parable, uh, the, the, the groom or, or maybe the, the king who is invited to the son's weddings turns to him and says, out because you're not properly dressed. And it's a description, I think, of someone trying to enter in their own self-righteousness rather than robed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's a whole other passage for a whole other time. But it's interesting that Jesus concludes that, that parable or that illustration by these words, for many are called, but few are chosen. I'm convinced that everyone, everyone ought to have a call to the gospel and receive an opportunity to place their faith and trust in Jesus. But not everyone's going to answer that call. 
Not everyone's going to answer that call. And this is Matthew's moment. This is his moment. This is his opportunity. Completely oblivious and unaware, Jesus invades his life and, and he's going to say, follow me. And that's what happened to you. At one point, in one place, in one moment in your life, you were minding your own business and all of a sudden he invades your life and he convicts you of your sin and he invites you to become a part of his family and to be a disciple. And he, he selected you. He sought you out. Why? Because he loves you and he wants to redeem you as a sinner and recruit you as one of his servants. And he takes the initiative and he selects Matthew. Notice the reason he selects Matthew is because of the condition that Matthew was well aware of in his own life. There is here a desperate condition that we find in the heart and the life of Matthew. Now, keep in mind that Matthew is writing his own story, his own testimony, his own witness of how he came to faith in Christ. These are his words. And I'm not so sure I would describe myself or define myself in these words. It's interesting to me. I don't know about you, but when I read texts like this, I, I want to know why God chose these words exactly this way. And why would he lead Matthew to record these words about himself? He says that he is a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. That's where he was. We know that he's a tax collector. He was a, a publican. He worked for the enemy. He, he, he was despised and rejected by his culture and his community, especially his church. More than likely, he didn't attend the synagogue because, you see, in order to have this sort of post, in order to be able to have this kind of profession you paid in advance to the Roman government in order to collect taxes they estimated what you would have to collect and they would charge you in advance of the collection how'd you like to have that with the internal revenue service and then they could collect above and beyond that they did not care and you could keep the rest and so he was always under suspicion. It doesn't say here that he did that because there's no indication that when he came to faith in Christ, he gave anyone back anything that he had robbed like another guy who was a tax collector. But yet here we have this tax collector sitting in his booth describing himself in that fashion. You would have thought he'd have been a little bit more, you know, delicate to reveal such Something about him because we're reading it today thousands of years later and we know the kind of man that people thought that he was. And he describes himself by one name, his own name. His name is Matthew. That is his name. That's the name he wants to go by. I have a son. Our firstborn son is named Matthew. I know what that name means. We named him because of what the name means. I believe that's why we chose the name. We like the name, but we also chose the names of our children because of what they mean. The word Matthew, the name Matthew means gift of Jehovah or gift of Yahweh or gift of God. And our firstborn was definitely a gift. I'm not going to connect the dots to you, for you. You know, he's not planned. He was a gift. That's kind of how it works. So he was a gift. All children are a gift. So he says that he's Matthew. Now it would have been enough. It would have been sufficient for him to say, my name is Matthew, because we would know at that point that he's a man, because I don't know of any women that are named Matthew. Do you? I mean, our culture has, has come a long way and in a lot of things, and some of it is completely contradictory to the scriptures and against what we believe God to want for our society. But I don't know of too many women named Matthew. I don't know of any woman named Matthew. Do you? And so it would have been sufficient enough for him to say Matthew. But it's interesting that he says that he is a man named Matthew. Now, why that? Why a man named Matthew? 
I think it's because he's telling us and he's describing for us what he believes to be his condition. He is a man. He is a human being. And because he's a human being, he is a fallen creation of God. And he fully understands his, his condition as a sinner who is in need of a savior. He is reminded of it every single day as he looks in the mirror based upon his profession and because of the ostracization that he is receiving from those in his community, especially from the church, he is aware that he is a sinner and he believes himself to be beyond grace. There's no hope for him. And as we learn about our own starting point, we must come to that same realization that for us in our condition, there is no hope for us outside of Jesus and that we, like Matthew, as we begin this journey, must understand that we too, like him, are sinners. For the Bible says in Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man named Adam and death then through sin, and it is this way death came to all men. Why? Because all are what? All are sinners. I know it's going to be really hard for you, but the, 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 the 930 group like this, turn to your neighbor if, you, if you're close to one and say, you're a sinner. Was that fun? Yeah. Well, looking back at the eye, I said, you know, you're a sinner too. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, Romans 6.23 says, the consequence of that sin is separation from God, not in just this life, but in the life after this life for all eternity. We see in Romans 3, 10 through 12, notice what it says. As it is written, there is, notice, notice what it said, no one righteous. You, other people might call you good and think that you're good and you may do good things. And other may say, hey, you know, you're a good man. But in God's eyes, notice what he says. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one. Notice it says, no one who seeks God. There is no one who seeks God. Before salvation, no one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You are not the one because there is no one who is righteous. We're all sinners in desperate need of a savior. And that is this desperate condition of this man. And that is his beginning point. And we too, like Matthew, begin there. He was on a, on a hunt. He was searching us out and he saw us in our condition. He saw our need and he saw the potential that we had if, he would, if we would re respond to his call and he came to save us and he invites himself into our lives as he did Matthew, which leads us to the third category of this invitation here. He says, and he said to him, follow me. Jesus extends a deliberate invitation to Matthew as he does to us. There's a deliberate, intentional invitation. There is something that he wants to do. Notice the text says, and he said to him, Jesus walks up to the table where Matthew is sitting. I don't know if he was busy trying to count his numbers or maybe count his money or maybe trying to collect the toll or the, or the taxes that was due by the merchants or the farmers or the fishermen that came by this lucrative place that he had established, he had won, and he was making money for his family. I believe he was more than likely a very wealthy man. And Jesus interrupts his life and introduces himself, and he says, follow me. Follow me. Now, I don't believe that these are the only two words that, this, that Jesus spoke to this man. I think there's more in this conversation, but there are only two words recorded here. 
And apparently, the Holy Spirit believes that's all that's necessary. Because in order to follow Jesus, he's going to have to leave his old life and, and follow Jesus for a new life. To emulate him, to follow in his steps, to follow example, and to be like him, to follow me. That was Matthew's starting point. Jesus saw him. He saw his need. Matthew was aware of his condition. And he says, hey, Matthew, follow me. It's exactly what happened to you and to me when we came to faith in Christ, wasn't it? But the invitation that he extends to Matthew and the invitation that he sends to us is not an invitation that is a lighthearted invitation where we simply just step up and say some quick prayer so that we can, you know, cash in this incredible bonus and blessing called salvation and then walk out the doors of the church and never live for him. That's not conversion. That's not being born again. The life that he's calling Matthew to live is the life that he's calling us to live as described as he did in Matthew 16 as he continues this gospel narrative in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, he said, if anyone, that means anyone, that is unconclusive, anyone who would come after me, who wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want Christ? Lose your life. You're willing to give it up, you'll find it. For Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it in abundance. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in order for us to, to, to follow Christ and receive the life, we must die to the old life and embrace a new life. A life of denial, a life of sacrifice, a life of following the footsteps of Christ. That was the invitation. And notice the decision that Matthew made in the next, the last part of that verse. There is a decisive moment and a move in the life of Matthew. Notice, and he rose and he followed him. That's incredible. He rose and he followed. Two actions, two steps, two things that he did. He rose and he followed. I don't know about you, but that rose thing, that, that kind of sticks in my crawl. It, 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 to me, it's kind of like the words that Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, where he, he, is, he is standing there before the tomb, and he says, I, I like to say this because it's not, Lazarus, come forth. Kind of, kind of authority, you know. And Lazarus, who's dead, who's dead, physically dead, has been dead for days, gets up from his dead position laying in that casket and hobbles outside. He's moving toward Christ. He rises from that dead condition and moves toward life. That is what Matthew is doing. He's raising up from that dead condition and moving to life. That's what he did. It's the same thing that happens to us. If you take a look at the narrative that I have for you, the passage in Ephesians 4, Paul describes it for us. It's, this is what happens at the moment of conversion. It's a one-time thing that we do when we come to faith in Christ and we receive the new life and the new birth. He says, you took off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the new self created after the likeness of God 
in true righteousness and purity of truth. What Matthew did, man, when he was sitting down and he looked up and Jesus and him had that interaction and he, he was convicted of his sin and saw Christ as the solution to that sin, he took off that old life and he stood up and he embraced the newness of life. That's what he did. A whole new lifestyle. A new mind, a new heart, a new character, a new nature. Everything changes for us when we place our faith and trust in Christ. This is what Paul and God is saying to us through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul. We put off the old by the power of the Spirit of God and we put on the new. And now we follow into the purposes of God for our lives to become like Jesus. But notice he followed him. He followed him. He followed him. He followed him where? Look at verse 10. As Jesus was reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. We see as he followed him, there was a definite change in Matthew's life. He was following Jesus. Where Jesus was going, he was going to go. He left it all behind and he embraced the new life and he's following Jesus. And where did Jesus take him? He took him to his home. I don't think Matthew took the initiative here. Matthew has just put all the old behind and he's embraced a whole new life. He's repented of his old life and he's embraced the new life. He's put all that aside and now he's following Jesus. He's for the first time feeling saved. He's feeling forgiven. He's feeling cleansed. He's been set free from the domination and the power and the control of sin. He's no longer feeling con condemned and convicted. And he's walking in, in this incredible joy. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what that was like? Dust the cobwebs off of your brain. Do you remember what that was like? And he's following Jesus. And Jesus takes us to him home because you notice they're sitting at the table. At the table where? The table in Matthew's home. And the first place that Jesus takes him is to his home. Why? Because he wants the, his family to see the transformation that happens when Christ touches a sinner and saves him and cleanses him of that sin. Can you imagine what that first encounter with his family was like? It was a party, man. He was saying, let me, let me introduce you to Jesus. I was lost and condemned and eternally hell bound and damned because of my sin given up by the church and I believed I was given up by God but he sought me out and he saw my condition and he invited me to follow him and I've released the old life and I've embraced the new life. Meet him, here he is. I wonder if any of his family became saved. And not only that, but we see that there was a, a friendship that began to gather because a news got around quickly. It's an imagined. Uh, they didn't have telephones or cell phones or texting or Facebook. How did it get out? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? Called gossip? Or maybe let's call it good news. Matthew's been changed. Matthew's been changed. And his old friends had heard about Jesus' encounter with Matthew and Matthew's encounter with Jesus and the transformation that happened to this, this friend that they had been involved in sin together. These are sinners. These are other tax collectors. These are other, others who have been ostracized by the church and the community and, and washed up and thrown out and said, you're not worthy. You're not self-righteous. You're not good enough. And all of a sudden, these people started gathering in Matthew's home. They had more than likely indulged in sinful acts together because, remember, they thought themselves to be hopeless. So all of these sinners are there. And they're reclining at the table. Why at the table? Because that's the place of the most intimacy that takes place in a home. Among family. 
And salesmen will tell you that if they can get you inside your kitchen and sit at your kitchen table, drinking coffee with you as they're making their presentation, you'll buy almost anything. Right? And Jesus is there at the table. And they're reclining at the table. And these sinners are here. And there's, there's an incredible moment of Matthew saying, guys, let me tell you something. Here's Jesus. Man, I thought my life was hopeless. I was a sinner condemned and damned to hell. And look, he saved me and he forgave me and he's called me and he's cleansed me. And now I have purpose and I'm one of his disciples. You can be one too. And I want you to meet him. Let me ask you something. What was one of the characteristics when Jesus issued an invitation for his disciples to follow him? Remember, he was along the seashore and he saw Simon, his brother Andrew. They were tending their nets. And he says, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. What's the sign of a changed life? The sign of a changed life is someone who knows that without the grace of God, they would be damned as well. That he sought them out and he called them by name and invited them in spite of their condition to, to trust in him as their Savior and Lord. And when they took off the old and embraced the new. He gave them life and hope and purpose and meaning. And now because of that, they want the world to know. That's what transformation looks like. It's the constant and continual awareness of your own depravity apart and aside from the grace of God. Your desperate need for others to know him and to experience that grace and that mercy and that love that you've received. And you can't shut it up. You can't shut it off. You can't stop talking about it. You can't stop introducing people to your Jesus. So as we close, let me ask you, what's your story? That's Matthew's story. What's your story? Do you have one? You see, as, as we begin this starting point, it's important, it's imperative that we understand that if you're going to have this, this, this conversion story, you have to be converted first, right? And it's surprising to me in all these decades of ministry, sometimes you talk to people and you said, are you a Christian? Yeah, well, tell me your story. Uh, 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 how's the weather up there? Yeah, they can't tell you their story. Now, I've learned over the years that there's probably reasons why people can't tell you their story. Uh, number one, probably because they've never been encouraged to write down their story and to think about their story through. And I'm going to encourage you to do that. Remember, you, you need to, to leave here this morning. If you're going to go out and you're going to, if God's going to use you and those people you're praying for right now to tell them about Jesus and introduce them to Jesus, you've got to have your story down. And most of us do not have our story down. And that's probably the reason why most of us can't tell our story because we don't have it down. And if you can't tell it in four minutes, you can't tell it at all. And I'm not saying you have to do that all the time. But you need to have your story down. What was your life before you came to know Christ? How did you come to know Christ and what led you to him? And what your life is like after you came to Christ? They can defute the scriptures and they can defute Christ all day long, but they can't defute your story and the transformed life and the Jesus that you're presenting to them. So you have your story down. If you don't have it down, you need to get it down because I may be asking, and we're going to be asking this next year, what's your story? 
I know that David's already started that in the, the trustee meetings. Everybody's going to have an opportunity to say, tell me your story. What's your story? And then some of us can't tell our story. You know why? Because we don't have one. We don't have one. Now, I'm not saying that everybody comes to, to faith in Christ the same way and has the same story and has the same moment and the same opportunity. But you ought to be able to nail it down. I, I've, I've said this before. I remember when I walked down the aisle of the church at, at Lake Highlands Baptist Church uh, on December 10th, 1979, and I committed my life and my heart for the rest of my life to Patty, Bos- Patty Willen Easley at the time, who is now Patty Boswell. That's a defining moment. It's an opportunity. I'll never forget that moment. I can tell you when I was born. August the 7th, 19... Blah, blah, blah. When were you born? Born again. And if you've been born again, have you followed up with baptism? And if you have followed up with baptism, how's your life been like? Has it been like since that moment and that time? I'm not saying it's all going to be easy and you're going to be perfect. But have you been following Christ? Because if you can't tell the end of the story, so you know my life hasn't been always easy. It hasn't always been perfect. There's been highs and lows and hards and difficult times and easy times. But you know what? To say it all and do it all, I want to tell you, I'm living for him. So what's your story? Maybe this morning you need to recognize your condition. What is your condition? Without Christ, you're lost. You need to realize that in Christ there's a provision. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This morning across this auditorium, he's cherry-picking those who he wants to invite to become Christ followers because most of us here probably already are. I hope we are. But maybe there's some who say, you know what, I've seen deacons, I've seen pastors, staff members, I've seen people who have been in church all their lives finally come to realize I don't have a story because I've never been born again. So I respond by making the decision that will anchor that decision that will change my story once and for all to walk in the confidence of knowing that Jesus Christ is my Savior and I have committed because of that invitation to follow Him and now I am reflecting a life transformation I'm seeking to follow him. So what is your story today? And what will be your decision today? Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.
song inside my heart.